0: increasingly horrified once Germany invaded the Netherlands and they watched their Jewish friends and neighbors suffer persecution after persecution. As followers of Christ, they became convicted that they needed to do something. So they agreed to join the Dutch resistance and they hid Jewish refugees that were trying to escape the country. They did this successfully for several years until one of their neighbors, I think a former friend, informed upon them, uh, and they were raided. Now, the Jews, miraculously, that were hiding in their house at the time were never found. However, there was enough evidence that implicated the Ten Booms as being part of the resistance that was found that all three were arrested. Casper Ten Boom was in his late 80s at the time, so he did not survive in prison that long. It might have been a few weeks, even a few months after they were arrested that he passed away. Corey and Betsy were moved to Germany uh, where they were sent to the Ravensbrück, the concentration camp. And the situation there was as horrific as we all have uh, historically learned it to be. Uh, They were stripped before they came in, completely naked, made to walk in front of male guards. Uh, They were forced to do very hard labor, The conditions they were kept in were worse than squalor. I mean, we've all studied the Holocaust, right? We know how bad it was. And Betsy and Corey actually, through a miracle, they were able to smuggle a Bible into the camp. Now, the physical environment was horrific, and Corey writes about how the emotional and spiritual environment was no better. There was so much darkness, as one could imagine, that would coincide with this level of evil and oppression so they did a bible study in their barracks and they were able to be this light that shone and many women's lives were changed through their sharing of the gospel unfortunately Betsy was never very healthy uh, and the condition of conditions of the camp were not amenable to someone who suffered with their health she eventually died before she passed away her and Corey talked about actually opening up a home after the war, so victims of the concentration camp could go there and recover. They could heal. Betsy wanted to have a garden so that they could get out and work with their hands and work out in nature and heal. Corey was so on board with this. She's like, done, I love it, let's do it. Here's a dream for us to hope in so we can survive this hellhole. Betsy also had a heart for the German guards. Corey couldn't get on board with that. But Betsy understood the scars that would be left on someone's soul after perpetrating such evil. And she would often say, Corey, just think about how much they need the love of God and forgiveness. (coughs) Corey was not that spiritual, uh, which is why I really love her story. Um, And so Betsy passes away. Corey is released on a clerical error, it was a mistake. She gets out. Uh, I believe a few weeks later, all the women in her barracks were executed. She goes back home, and there's nothing left for her. Uh, Her father and her sister are dead. The business is dead. Um, But she feels the Lord calling her to spread this message of love and forgiveness and to tell her story. So she begins to do that. She opens up the home the rehabilitation home for victims of the concentration camp, and she starts speaking and touring, and in 1947, three years after the end of the war, she goes into Germany, feels like God is calling her there to share this message, so she gets up in front of crowds of Germans and says to them, God loves you. He wants to forgive you. He has love and forgiveness for you, so one night, she shared this message, and she's standing there, a man begins to approach her, and she recognizes him as one of the guards in Ravensbrook that she was forced to walk in front of naked, her and her sister. And he comes up to her, and he says, Miss Ten Boom, uh, I was a guard at Ravensbrook. He does not recognize her. I was a guard at Ravensbrück, and, but since the war, I've become a Christian, and I know that God forgives me, but will you? And he held out his hand and extended it for her to shake. Let's pray. Father, um, would you please, uh, God, would you come and speak through your word? Holy Spirit, would you comfort and convict and encourage and dispense your grace and mercy where it's needed? Would you speak through this, God? Would Would you form your church and us as individuals to look more like you? In Jesus name. Amen. Welcome back from spring break. Hopefully all of you made good decisions, but if you didn't, you're in the right place, right? Because God's mercy and grace is never ending. Amen. There you go. So welcome back to church. We have been going through the Gospel of Luke, as Stephen mentioned, and the hope of going through the Gospel of Luke was that all of us individually and corporately as a church would grow in the knowledge, the love for, and the intimacy with Jesus Christ. And so since going through it, we have seen Christ as a miraculous infant whose mere presence caused the faithful in Israel to burst out in praise. If you remember Simeon in the temple, right? We've seen him as a young boy discussing theology in the temple with older men who are religious experts. We've seen his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God confirmed at his baptism by God the Father. We saw him venture into the desert and withstand every temptation the enemy threw at him proving himself faithful to the task that God had sent before him. We see him reach out to the sick and the broken and the least of these and call the unexpected to follow him, fishermen, tax collectors. We see him have authority over nature and disease and death, and today we will see Jesus as a teacher. Uh, Humans have a tendency to water down Jesus as a teacher. Either they're just over familiar with his teachings. Many of you will have heard what we're going to talk about today. Churched or not churched, part of it will be familiar. Okay. So it becomes over familiar, right? We water it down. There's a phrase familiarity breeds contempt. So we begin to say things like, well, I'm sure he didn't mean like that. Surely not that extreme. Or maybe we water it down just because his words make us feel uncomfortable. I know for me, when I was reading this passage this week, it stung, big time, to the point that when I was talking to Kyle and Stephen about it, I said, you know, I got to be honest, I really have been struggling with feeling worthy to talk about this. I just fall short so often in these areas, and they graciously reminded me what I want to tell you all today, and that is this passage is supposed to sting, that it's actually doing its job if it's hurting. And so I would like us today, if we can, to allow Jesus's words to hurt. Like maybe hurt our feelings a little bit and to sit in it just for a second. Just sit in the hurt just for a second. And if you can stick with me through it, hopefully at the end, uh, I will offer some things on what we can do with that pain Because while Jesus may want us to feel the pain of our falling short, he certainly doesn't desire us to stay there. Okay? But we have to feel it. It sucks. But we have to feel it. All right. When we pick up in Luke, Jesus has been accruing a large following. Not quite yet. Yami. almost. Sorry. I did not help her with slide notes. When we pick up in Luke, Jesus has been accruing a large following. Uh, They come for physical healing, for spiritual deliverance, Or maybe just because, y'all, this is going to sound cheesy, but Jesus was trending. Like, he really was. He was popular. He was a new attraction. Like, man, did y'all hear there's this guy who was a carpenter from Nazareth? Nazareth? Yes. And he heals people. And, like, demons flee. Like, he has the authority to cast demons out. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. Let's go take a look. That's why they were going. Uh, Regardless of their reasons for being there, some, as they watched and listened, will actually decide to follow Jesus. They will become his disciples. Now, there were significantly more than 12, okay? That's often what we hear, 12 disciples, 12 disciples. Jesus actually had way more than 12. We know a few chapters later in Luke 10, he had at least 72, probably more. There were men and women from all different walks of life that decided to follow Christ as he healed and taught and began his ministry in Judea. Now, he did, Jesus did appoint 12 disciples of those disciples to be apostles. In the Greek, that just means messenger or sent one. In the not too distant future, these 12 men would serve as the leaders of the early church, right? But that story is for another day. At the very beginning of our passage, we just see Jesus appointing these 12 men. That's all I wanted to say about it. And I wanted to emphasize that because when we start going into the scripture, it's clear that Jesus is addressing his disciples. And I did not want you to think that that doesn't include you, because it does. All of us who have decided to follow Jesus are his disciples, and as such, what we talk about today applies to us. Okay. Right, okay, Jesus is a teacher, I did want to say, was very unpopular. (laughs) I mean, people were cool with like, Jesus healing people and ministering to the sick and the worthy. But as soon as he started to talk, Jesus was very good at making people feel uncomfortable, even homicidal, right? It was really intense. And so today as now, I want us to think about as we move forward, is there a point that I don't like Jesus? Is there a place I don't like Jesus going? He can come up to here, but then after that, no, no, Jesus. No, no, I don't like you talking about that. All right, let's begin. Matthew six twenty, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Real quick, uh, the prophets he's talking about are the prophets in the Old Testament that God gave messages to share. Very rarely was it good news, and a lot of people hated it when these prophets spoke up. Some of them killed the prophets. Uh, And so that's what Jesus is talking about when he refers to that. Jesus is not spiritualizing a state of poverty, hunger, depression, or persecution. And by that I mean he's not saying these things in and of themselves are holy. Okay? He is saying to be poor or hungry or depressed or persecuted and put and maintain your faith and trust in God at the same time Is a blessing. So uh, about 12 years ago now, I had my first really intense season of anxiety that was debilitating. And uh, you should know about me that I really have struggled with self righteousness and self sufficiency, right? And my whole family says, Amen. I'm growing, which is awesome, but at the time it was very bad. And So I'm laying on the floor of my in-law's guest bedroom because we were living with them for a few months while support raising to go on staff, and I am pissed at God because my life just fell out from underneath me. I was married, and I was going to go on staff, and I was amazing, and I'm support raising, and look how sacrificial I'm being, and I had done everything right. I didn't have sex with my husband before we got married. Barely, but we didn't. I didn't drink. Too much or get drunk. I didn't do drugs. I was respectful to my parents. I made the right decisions and I was on the floor having invasive thoughts of self-harm and just feeling like someone had taken an ice cream scoop and slowly carved out my chest. You know what I mean? Why? This was not fair. And then God, in his grace, he uh, comes up to me And I have this image of him (laughs) coming up as I'm on the fetal position on the floor and he just squats in front of me like this. And he's like, hey, baby girl. And I'm like, yes. And he goes, you know all those people in your life that you think you're better than? And I'm like, I don't like where this is going. (laughs) And he's like, those people that are broken and just on, like, Broken and empty and totally in bondage to sin and struggling and can't get their act together and just start, they're incompetent and whatever. They are closer to me than you are because they understand they need me. Yeah, it was fun. Um, anyone else but God telling me that would have gotten a fist in the face. <clears throat> so I wept even more. Uh, And broke even more, but this time it was good. Because I understood what I had been clinging to wasn't working. Can we really say that it is better to be poor, to be hungry, depressed, or persecuted, and understand your need for God than it is to be comfortable? That it would be better for you to be single, to never, ever have sex, okay, okay? To be childless, to work a dead-end job, to be fired from your dream job, to fail out of college, to live paycheck to paycheck, to never achieve what you get up in the morning for. To never see any of that fulfilled. It would be better for that to happen and for you to understand you need God than to have all of your dreams come true. And I just want to say, keep this in your back pocket for if and when you hit one of these seasons, okay? We continue to trust God in these seasons because of who he is and what he has promised us. Pay attention to blessed are you who are hungry now for what you shall be satisfied. Jesus is not saying you're going to stay hungry because that's what the spiritual thing is to do, right? That's why I mean he's not saying hunger and poverty is spiritual. He's saying Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You're poor now, you're going to inherit a kingdom one day. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. God is coming, he's working, Jesus is going to come back and renew all of this. And that is why we're able to trust God in the midst of it, okay? Not because God is like some terrible person who wants us to be in pain, He's going to redeem all of this. All right. Keep that in your back pocket. And we continue. But woe to you who are rich. Yeah, sorry. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Again, Just like there were prophets who spoke on God's behalf, there were false prophets who said, thus saith the Lord, but then they told the people what they wanted to hear. These people were popular. And God's saying, no. Jesus is not condemning wealth or satisfaction or laughter, or the esteem of man. He's not saying, again, these things in and of themselves are bad. In fact, I want to say specifically with the laughter that the Greek here indicates a callous, mocking laughter that of people who do not care about others, okay? That's like even more intense. Um, what Jesus is condemning here is trusting these more than we do him. And he's warning us, here's the truth, guys, they are pitfalls, I mean, there's a reason why, let's put it this way, when you fast food, one of the benefits, just one of the benefits of fasting food is that you quickly realize how much of what you think of yourself is just because you have three square meals a day. Your spirituality, your ability to be nice to people, your energy, your ability to get stuff done is only because you were happened to be born in a nation and to a family that didn't experience food scarcity. Okay? And so that's why things like material wealth and comfort can be pitfalls. It's just so easy to forget how much we need Jesus in the midst of them. Last week, Kyle and I were so privileged to be able to get away for a week and celebrate our 10-year anniversary and it was beautiful, it was amazing, and people kept saying, it's paradise, it's paradise, this is paradise, and, and I'll be honest, if any physical environment could take away the anxiety I struggle with, the environment we were in could do it. It was the closest I have ever been and maybe ever will get to being in the lap of luxury, right? People's entire jobs was to meet every need I had, and it wasn't enough. I remember sitting on my beach chair, being in pain, and weirdly, being grateful that this wasn't enough, that this wasn't it for me. This isn't all there is. This is not my consolation, right? But I had to fight that temptation all week. All week, I had to be like, this is not, this is not, this is not what I'm living for. It's okay if the experience isn't exactly what I imagined it to be. And this is why, when your dreams come true, you will realize you put way too much in them. If, yeah, when your dreams come true, you'll realize you put too much in them. A perfect marriage, that'll fail you real quick, okay? Like your honeymoon quick, like your wedding night quick, okay, like the drive to the hotel on your wedding night quick, all right? Your dream job will fail you, like, your friends will fail you. Anything you put your hope in outside of Christ will fail you. It's not designed to hold your hope. It's not its fault. God never intended it to do that. <clears throat> All right. I'm getting distracted. Um, thank you. Thank you. So our, my question here is, will you follow Jesus by choosing him over wealth, comfort, or the approval of man? This is something you need to talk about in your life group and hash out, okay, if God's stirring in it. Second, we're going to continue with Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's the golden rule, right? The reason why you know the golden rule is because Jesus said it. We love to take away credit from Christ because we're uncomfortable with his authority and lordship that comes with it. But I want to give credit where credit is due. So many times people are like, well, here's how we should treat people. And they completely ignore the fact that it all came from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Right? This is Christ saying, treat others as you would like to be treated. I lost my place. Here we go. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Uh, Kyle was on campus doing Solarium, I think it was last semester. If you're unfamiliar, Solarium is just a tool we use to like initiate deep conversations with people. It's amazing. You should go out and try it. Uh, it's really awesome. Anyway, and so he had struck up a conversation with this person who was like, man, we just need to love people. Like, I don't understand why it's so hard. Everyone needs to love everyone. Like, we need to love people from all ethnicities, which he's right. We need to love people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, which he's right. We need to love people of all like gender identities, which he's right. Check, check, check. He's all right, right? This is true and good. And so Kyle and, can, Kyle and him continued talking, and then those who struggle with pedophilia came up. And Kyle's like, well, what about this? And the guy goes, they should all be tied up and killed. See, here's the rub with what Jesus is saying. There is no asterisk next to love your enemies. At no point does Jesus say, well, except these people, obviously, The world wants us to take what Jesus said and fit it around its values. So the world's like, well, you shouldn't hate people except for people who do things that we've all determined are wrong or people who tell you that what you're doing is wrong. Those are the people it's okay to hate. Outside of Jesus, you get to decide who is worthy of love and who isn't. And you are not a good guide heaven help me, like literally, heaven help me if I am the one that gets to decide if someone in my life is worthy of love or not. I wouldn't be married today, first of all. And I probably would have really terrible relationships with my children. And what's crazy to me is that all of us have experienced the consequences of a human deciding, do they get to love us or not? Do they have to love us or not? All of us have experienced that. And we know it's terrible, and yet we continue on and act like that's how it's supposed to be. We've all seen the failure of that system, right? <clears throat> and also what I want to say is that outside of Christ, especially right now, love is often defined as acceptance of behavior, which what makes Jesus asks of us incomprehensible. How, how evil of a God would it be that would ask a child to accept the behavior of someone who had abused them? That is not what Jesus is saying when he says, love your enemies, okay? We're not saying that behavior is okay. You are not obligated to have any kind of relationship with someone. You can love them and not have a relationship with them. Sometimes the loving thing to do is actually to place a boundary and not give that person permission to keep hurting you. For them to experience the consequences of their behavior. But we do release them. We forgive them, maybe especially when they don't deserve it. They no longer owe you for the damage they've done. And that is very difficult. I don't want to pretend like that's easy. Corey ten Boom actually talked about in that house she set up for victims, she saw time and time again that those who were able to move on, to leave the home, to continue and have some kind of life, were those that were able to release and truly forgive and love those who had hurt them. Those that were not able to succumb to bitterness and resentment, and they were trapped in their pain. It's just funny, I can't help but wonder if this command to love our enemies is as much, if not more, for our own good as it is for the good of the person we're loving, right? I think sometimes we can be like, well, Jesus is just asking me to do this because I need to love people. And it is a beautiful picture, and it's an awesome witness of what Jesus, like God, but more importantly, Jesus is looking at you and going, please, please, you don't understand, love your enemy. It is for your good right? Diane Chen, who wrote a book on Luke, and I really love this, says, Jesus demands that his disciples not only counter the negative treatment they receive with non-retaliation, but that they also infuse it with life-giving overture. The hard part is to genuinely and ungrudgingly wish for the well-being of an enemy. Love is not sentimentalism but a decisive action that runs counter to the natural vindictive response of the fallen human nature. And so to give you an example of what Diane is talking about, I'm going to read Corey's words about how this story with her and the guard wrapped up. And I don't have it written here, so bear with me and listen. I just thought her words were so much better than anything I could summarize. (laughs) And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. She couldn't forgive him. She couldn't shake his hand. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I could not have been many, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. And still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart. So, The reason I share that story is not to tell you that it's always going to be that easy. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not going to be like, oh, forgiveness. Like, I'm completely healed. Like, that's not, forgiveness can often be very nitty gritty day by day. I'm going to choose every day. And then suddenly, maybe years later, you find yourself released. But what I did love about that story is that Corey realized all I can do is raise my hand. That's it. And so when it comes to loving your enemies, right now, what does it look like to just raise your hand? You don't have to be ready to forgive. You don't, like, you don't have to be completely there, but like, what is God maybe asking you to do to just raise your hand? Maybe it does look like taking a first step toward forgiveness. Maybe it looks like intentionally praying for the good of someone that you don't like that you have struggled with bitterness and resentment toward, praying blessings over them. Maybe it looks like going to a counselor to talk about that person who hurt you. Right? Do not hold on to hatred. Are we willing to follow Jesus by loving our enemies? Lastly, this next part will really help with what I just talked about, by the way. Jesus goes into... Sorry, this is Luke 6, verse 20, no, 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Everyone loves this verse. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So um, I had a person that I really was struggling with bitterness and resentment, and it was well on its way to hatred. And they had hurt me and people I love, and I was very frustrated by the situation. And I'm... I was in my closet, like pressed into my hang-up clothes, like my whole body. I was just like, breathing in like the clothes. (laughs) And I was like, I cannot love this person, Jesus. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And I was angry. I was like, fine, you love them through me. I'll just not actively be angry at them. That was the most I could give that was me raising my hand it was literally like me going fine just getting out of the way and being like do it Jesus like all I could do was move over six inches and just take my wounded pride with me and let Jesus move so I prayed that a few weeks later I had a dip with the anxiety and I was feeling not great and I'm sobbing and all of a sudden Uh, I had been really terrible to my husband because of the pain. And all of a sudden, I hear the Holy Spirit go, isn't it crazy what people will do to others when they're hurt? And I was just like, and that person that I was so angry at, all of it melted away because I had been judging them. And I had thought things like, I can't believe they're doing this. Do they not understand the effect their behaviors having? This is ridiculous. They're terrible. They're not listening to the Lord. Obvious, you know, whatever. Y'all know how it goes. And the whole time, I myself am struggling with not being a very good uh, wife, not listening to my husband, being very nitpicky with him, just, you know, badgering him, nagging him. And the Lord was just like, You've got to like, stop. There's so much that we don't know. You don't know, right? Especially today, y'all. We are not to judge those who chose not to get vaccinated. We are not to judge those who really want a vaccine mandate. We are not to judge those that don't wear a mask. We are not to judge those who do wear a mask. You, gosh, when y'all become parents, the parent judgment is a real, like, there was a home group in the church we came from that had to stop talking about diapers. I kid you not, they banned conversation about diapers. Some of you are like, what? Because there's this thing called cloth diapering where you use, like, reusable diapers you know and you can wash them and it's like good for the environment and it saves a lot of money and then other people like me use those diapers that are wind up in dumpsters and like just with no shame are like I'm gonna throw away this diaper every single time and those two point of views clashed to the point that it was causing disunity in the home group so I don't know where it is for y'all right now it's probably not reusable diapers Probably, but what is it that you think in your mind there's no way that person can be right? There's no way. There is so much we don't know, right? And so what I want to say this, um, Jesus is not saying, however, Jesus is not saying that we never tell anyone when they're wrong. Notice at the end he says, first get the log out of your eye, then point out the speck, okay? What he is saying is that we approach them with compassion and humility. And if it's your place, is it true, is it kind, is it necessary? I talk about my nine-year-old all the time. Zeke, is this true? Yes, is it kind? Maybe, is it necessary? No, (laughs) usually not. So we approach them with compassion and humility. And the reason why we're able to do this, guys, I want you to listen is that Jesus, oh wait, yeah, he did not, when uh, the sinful woman was brought before him and those men were like, we caught her in adultery, what should we do? The law indicated that she should be stoned. Um, they were basically setting up a trap for him. I don't have time to get into it. And so what does he do? He says, he who knew, knows no sin, throw the first stone. And no one did. He basically turned it and was like, oh, are any of you fit to judge this woman? Real quick, just checking. No? Okay, leave. Did he say, all right, get up. Everything's fine. You've made great decisions with your life. No. He said, get up, woman. Where are your accusers? They're not here. Go and sin no more. Okay? So once you 've done the hard work of removing the logs of your own eye, then we can come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ and graciously and compassionately and humbly be like, "Hey, man, I love you. I just this behavior I 've seen, like, are you okay? I just want to check in. You seem angry. Do you need to talk to someone? I 'm worried about you. There's ways to do it. all right? Work it out in community because this is not what that teaching this is not what this teaching's about um finally jesus will be a better judge than you ever could be right these people are not going to get off uh if we understood fully what the judgment seat of christ was going to look like i think we would very quickly move to compassion maybe not even compassion but we could at least get to pity for s- what some of these people who've done evil evil things will face on earth jesus says hey if you cause a child to stumble it would be better for you to commit suicide Tie a millstone, really heavy, circular stone around your neck and go jump off that cliff. It'd literally be better for you to do that than cause this child to stumble. That was while he was on earth, (laughs) right? Imagine him sitting on the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to face that wrath. I could do nothing compared to what Christ is going to expect them to answer for. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. God has given Jesus the role of judge. He is the only person who is worth, who can rightly and correctly judge all of us. And he will. And when you are having trouble not judging someone or not letting go of something, if someone has validly hurt you, remember that they will have to face Christ. Will you follow Jesus by choosing compassion over judgment? In conclusion, how do we do this? I'm not going to get into the rest of the passage because we don't have time. Uh, But at the very end, uh, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Okay, how do I not run to the things of this world to satisfy me instead of Jesus? How can I really depend on him? How can I love this person who I hate? How can I move from hating them to loving them? What does that even look like given the very specific situation, whatever it is? How can I change my heart from judgment to compassion even in situations where this person deserves judgment? How can I do all that? Today, I just want to offer the solution of building your house upon the rock, not the sand. If you have decided to follow Christ, right, he is your foundation. And when the storm of hatred or materialism or your world falls out from underneath you and you realize everything you built isn't enough, or someone hurts you in a way that rocks your world and you have nothing, like you lose your community, you lose everything, what do you hold on to in that point? If you've built your foundation upon the rock, you will be okay. It might be a process, but you will be okay. And so if you haven't done that, like if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, I just want you to just think about it. Ask yourself what the world has to offer, how it works, how it operates. Will that really, will I really be able to make it through life with that? Christ is a solid foundation. Um, If you have put your faith in Christ but are still struggling, I want you to pay attention. Can you go back a slide? To the very beginning. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So I, w- I want to offer graciously that you maybe need to do what Jesus is telling you to do and not the way you want to do it. Like to borrow from the analogy, sometimes we build our house upon the rock, but then we add a whole bunch of sand on top of the rock. And then a storm hits, and praise God, we get down to the rock and realize we're okay, but we had a real hard time going down. Our whole house is destroyed because we realize we've been not doing what Jesus asked us to do. So, build your house upon the rock, not the sand.